Well, the theme of our conference tonight is centers of influence. And we want to look at two men who were centers of influence. Both men changed their world, but only one is worthy of emulation. Let's pray. Dear Father, we'd like to bring an additional word of prayer to you. We're going to be opening your word, and we're unworthy to hear your word and to have the lovely Jesus presented before our eyes. But we need it. We must have it. And so tonight we pray that Jesus can be seen, our hearts can be touched, and we can be changed. In his name we pray, amen. I love the introductions to Jesus' stories. Luke 18, 10, Dr. Luke writes it. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. This evening, I'm only going to look at the first four introductory words. Two men went up. With those four words, two men went up. Jesus would take our minds back to one of the great stories of all times. Recently, I received an email from a friend of mine who is living in Kansas, and apparently in southeast Kansas and actually down south into Texas, they're having a drought that's the worst since the Dust Bowl days. If it goes on for another year, it will actually surpass the drought of the Dust Bowl. And um, it is even worse in Texas with dust storms now occurring, from what I've seen. But Kansas and Texas are not the only areas in the world that have droughts. The Bible shows the land of Canaan not only as a land flowing with milk and honey, but as a land of frequent droughts with resultant famine. In the days of the patriarchs, every generation of patriarch faced a drought. The drought at the time of Abraham was so severe that it threatened the lives of his household and it took them into Egypt. His son Isaac lived through a drought that was so severe it took him to the land of the Philistines. And Jacob faced a drought that was so severe for seven years, Joseph had predicted it, that it said there was no bread even available. And he also went into Egypt. The droughts did not end with the patriarchs. In the days of Ruth, there was a drought with a famine that took her family into the land of Moab. In the days of David, there was a drought with a famine. Sometimes Christians are surprised when their life faces drought and loss. Famine, they face difficulty, they face perhaps even the end of their careers. But the Bible record is clear, at some point in our life, every Christian faces a time of drought. Understanding drought and famine is essential for us to be medical evangelists, and that's why I want to talk about it tonight. Although Israel had many droughts and famines, the very worst drought on record occurred during the evil reign of King Ahab. I remember a little child's book that we would frequently read to our children when they were small, The Time of No Rain. Everyone knows the story well here. 
land of Israel was suffering from spiritual heart failure. And during the re reign of Ahab, the condition had taken an ominous turn for the worst, 1 Kings 16.30. Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. To treat Israel's life-threatening spiritual illness, God raised up Elijah, a physician of the soul who would carefully administer a very potent treatment. Notice how Ellen White describes the man. Prophets and Kings 119, while he came to the people as a reprover of sin, read me the next part. His message offered the balm of Gilead to the sin-sick souls of all who desired to be healed. He was a physician of the soul. Dr. Elijah's prescription for Israel and their spiritual heart failure was short. I suppose you could call fluid restriction a form of hydrotherapy. <laughs> now Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The doctor's orders had been written and it was immediately and faithfully followed. For three and a half years, there was not one cloud that appeared in the sky. There was neither the smallest drop of rain nor the finest bead of dew in any part of northern Israel. The description of the land after only one year of this horror is striking. Remember, this is the first year. Prophets and Kings 124, the earth is parched as if with fire. The scorching heat of the sun destroys what little vegetation has survived. Streams dry up, and lowing herds and bleeding flocks wander hither and thither in distress. Once flourishing fields have become like burning desert sands, a desolate waste. The groves dedicated to idol worship are leafless. The forest trees, gaunt skeletons of nature, afford no shade. The air is dry and suffocating. Dust storms blind the eyes and nearly stop the breath. Once prosperous cities and villages have become places of mourning. Hunger and thirst are telling upon man and beast with fearful mortality. Now there's some interesting consequences of drought. Number one, during a drought, the work is much more difficult. Without rain to soften the soil, even early in a drought, plowing is very, very difficult. Secondly, during a severe drought and famine, even though the work is harder, the solution is not simply to work harder. It doesn't matter how hard you work. Your efforts are for naught. It doesn't matter how much you plant. There's not going to be a harvest. It doesn't matter how much you fertilize. It won't help the plants to grow. You don't have to worry about weeding since not even weeds can grow, so I suppose there is some comfort. All the usual methods and secrets for a successful farm fail in a drought. There's a third consequence of drought that is important in medical evangelism. In a time of famine without food or water, there is no effective medical treatment. What if God brought a climate change to North America and it became like Australia with the center all desert, the only useful ground located in a strip around the coast. Imagine the disruption it would cause. Imagine the poverty and starvation. And that's what happened in northern Israel during this time without rain.
Now, what do you think the people in Israel tried to do as the drought became prolonged? Many of them would try to leave the land of Israel, just like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ruth. Um, they'd go to a place that was still watered. Some may have gone down to southern Israel. Some may have gone north to Syria or Phoenicia. But most would have no place to go. And there would be the others who could simply stay and hope the drought was going to end pretty quick. But the fluid restriction treatment continued. And the second year brought no water. Notice the description of the effects of year two for those who have no place to go and had to remain in the land of Israel. Page 127 of Prophets and Kings. Drought and famine continued there. Notice that next word, devastation throughout the kingdom. Fathers and mothers, powerless to relieve the sufferings of their children, were forced to see them die. The most indi sensitive indicator of drought is child mortality. In the well-studied Great Famine of China in 1959 to 1961, children under the age of 10 years old were particularly vulnerable. This is the very hardest part emotionally to see happen. I remember my second uh, surgery to observe was an orthopedic uh, surgery when I was just uh, first year, actually three months into medical school. And I saw a little seven-year-old being operated on the, with the hand. And I began to feel squeamish. And I began to feel faint. And I had to leave the, exam, the uh, operating room as that knife cut into the hand. And you know this was not an easy treatment for a God to administer. But it was necessary. God's fluid restrictions begin to bring change in Israel. With destitution, poverty, and starvation, people's priorities begin to change. Instead of trying to decide between which entertainment they would have this weekend, instead of trying to decide, well now, which movie are we going to watch? What fancy clothes are we going to wear to, to church? They had to decide where they were going to find water just to carry it back to their families to drink and forget about washing. Um, if they could get perfume, it would have to do. At last, want threatened the palace, and King Ahab began to fear for the survival of his own family. Prophets and Kings 137, the king, deeply concerned over the outlook for his household, decided to unite personally with his servant in a search for some favored spots where pasture might be had. Ahab, you see, couldn't trust his servants to reveal where water might be. Because if, they, if he sent someone out to find water, what do you think they would do? Hide it and take it for themselves. You know the rest of the story. Elijah appears first to a believer, Obadiah. And Obadiah is the messenger that is used to tell King Ahab to meet Elijah. King Ahab has come to hate Elijah, but he fears Elijah, and he fears Elijah's God. And shaking with barely disguised fear, surrounded by his soldiers, Ahab braves the presence of Elijah, unarmed and single there. 
But as if Elijah was the monarch and Ahab was the servant, Elijah tells the king to summon all Israel to a showdown at Mount Carmel. It seems all Israel obeys the king's command, except for the queen who shows her utter indifference in contempt for Elijah and his God by refusing to come to Carmel. Ahab was no head of house for his family. On Mount Carmel, the 850 prophets of Baal seemed to be as impotent and powerless before Elijah and before Jehovah God as they had been for the last three and a half years. And the boastings of the power of their son God, Baal, are silenced. In answer to Elijah's simple prayer, God reveals himself in a pillar of fire and instantly vaporizes the water that had been poured over the altar. It consumes the sacrifice and melts and consumes even the rocks making up the altar on which the sacrifice was laid. Following this exhibition of God's power, the prophet Elijah gives the command and the false prophets of Baal are seized and executed. But that is not the end of the story. Without the rest of the story, the drought would have continued, and today northern Israel would be as dry as the Sahara Desert. It is the next action of Elijah that brings a climactic end to the drought. 1 Kings 18.42, so Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. We started with a parable of Jesus. Jesus said that two men went up, one a Pharisee, the other a publican. But notice 1 Kings 18.42 again. So Ahab went up, and Elijah went up. Exactly the same as in Christ's story. Two men went up. In Christ's story, two men went up, one to make a pretense of prayer and the other to really pray. In this Old Testament story, two men went up, one to eat and drink, the other to pray. In both stories, two men went up, but only one man went up to truly pray. In both stories, one man went up to give himself satisfaction, the other went up to give God satisfaction. The verse before is interesting. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Ahab was told by Elijah, If you're going to eat, you'd better do it now, because there's going to be a rainstorm that's soon going to make it impossible for you to eat. Of course, King Ahab should have said, Elijah, what about you? Have you eaten all day? Where are you going to eat? Please, come, eat with me. Wouldn't that have been gracious? Wouldn't that have been thoughtful? Wouldn't that have been the right thing to do? But selfish Ahab wasn't thoughtful, he wasn't gracious, and neither was he thankful. He gave Elijah no such invitation. Had, Elijah, had Ahab invited the prophet Elijah up to eat, Elijah would have turned him down because Elijah knew that he needed to pray. Though God had promised Elijah he was going to send rain, 
Elijah knew that rain could not come without first earnest, humble prayer. God says, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin. And then God will heal their land. When Elijah said to King Ahab, go up, eat, and drink, he was giving Ahab a test question. Would he seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, or would he seek first his own creature comforts? Ahab should have said, this is not a time for me to eat and drink. This is a time for me to join you. Could I come with you in fasting and prayer that the Lord will end the drought on my kingdom? But selfish, ungrateful, unmindful of the God of heaven, the Bible records. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. Two men went up. One man went up to eat and drink. The other went up like the publican in Christ's story to humble himself, pray, and not stop praying until his prayer was heard. As a result of Elijah's earnest prayer, the drought ended, the rain fell. This morning when you got up, who were you like? Did you get up and make sure you could eat and drink like Ahab? Or did you first humble yourself? Cast yourself on the earth with your face between your legs. Did you pray until your drought ended this morning with floods of water? David sang, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee. What a difference rain makes. With the rain at Mount Carmel, the drought ended. Within a few months, Elijah returned to the land of Israel after fleeing to Sinai. Notice what the youth instructor recounts, how changed the scene before him now from that which the country had presented a little while before. Then the farming districts were unworked. The ground was parched, for neither dew nor rain had fallen for three years. Now everything seemed to be springing up as if to redeem the time of famine and dearth. That's what redeeming the time means. Sadly, though the physical drought may have ended, the spiritual drought had not. I just looked this up, and uh, Dr. Swartz thought that perhaps a dermatologist should not be talking about heart failure. Um, and no longer is fluid restriction apparently the recommended treatment. Because it didn't seem, according to what I just read, it didn't seem to be very effective. And the sad fact is that fluid restriction wasn't very effective on the congestive failure of Israel either. Notice this uh, continuation. The plenteous rains had done more for the earth than for the hearts of humanity. The fields were better prepared for labor than were the hearts 
of apostate Israel. As terrible as this drought and famine proved to be, it wasn't the most terrible scourge in Israel. The apostasy and corresponding spiritual drought made it difficult to work for souls. The children of Israel remained hard-hearted and unresponsive. There's an important lesson in this story for medical evangelists. In the sign language of the Bible, rain is a symbol for the Holy Spirit. We speak of the former and latter rain. Through Isaiah, God promised, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed. Jesus told Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Just as we cannot live a physical life without water, we cannot have a spiritual life without the water of life. Fellow physicians, dentists, and other healthcare providers, we cannot do medical evangelism without rain. In a drought, our most diligent efforts are unavailing for a harvest. We must have rain. Drought and famine illustrate the effects of the absence of the Holy Spirit. The Bible gives us three reasons rain is withheld. Uh, reason number one, disobedience. God told Moses to tell the children of Israel, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. In the New Testament, Peter told the leaders of Israel that the Holy Spirit was given to those who obey God. After telling the Israelites that the early and latter rain was promised to the obedient, God, through Moses, warned of five increasingly severe punishments for disobedience. The second punishment of the series would be rain that would be withheld with a severe drought. Leviticus 26, 19, I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. This punishment, however severe it seemed to be, was not God's greatest judgment. It was early. Only number two in the sequence of increasing chastisement. Israel's failure to repent would be followed by judgment number three, judgment number four, judgment number five, finally leaving Israel without institutions. Israel destroyed and Israel scattered among the nations. Israel's failure would see those judgments come over the next several hundred years and the kingdom of Assyria destroy them. The second reason rain is withheld is because of apostasy and backsliding. Lack of perseverance in the way, fainting in the day of, of adversity. Jeremiah 3.2, you have polluted the land with your vile whoredom, therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Jeremiah 3 is not simply an ancient and irrelevant document. Notice letter 34, 1899. Please read the third chapter of Jeremiah. This chapter is a lesson for modern Israel. Let all who claim to be children of God understand that he will not serve with their sins any more than he would with the sins of ancient Israel. God hates hereditary and cultivated tendencies to Rome. The third and final cause of drought is lukewarm apathy. We're all familiar with Christ's visceral reaction to the lukewarm Laodiceans and his spitting them out of his mouth. But what exactly is Laodicean lukewarmness? Acts of the Apostles, page 50. Wherever the need of the Holy Spirit is a matter little thought of, there is seen spiritual drought 
spiritual darkness and spiritual declension and death. Like the drought in the time of Ahab and the time of no rain, there had uh, death, particularly among the children. Whenever minor matters occupy the attention, the divine power which is necessary for the growth and prosperity of the church and which would bring all other blessings in its train is lacking though offered in infinite plenitude. A spiritual drought had left Israel a desert drier than the Atacamba Desert in Chile long before Elijah announced the fluid restrictions to Ahab in his court. When the moisture of the Holy Spirit is absent from the life, from the home, from the church, from the community, there is spiritual famine and death. Our preaching brings no real conviction of sin. Our evangelistic efforts bear little fruit. And the most sensitive indicator of all is spiritual child mortality. Of all people, physicians and dentists, medical evangelists should recognize pediatric, pediatric morbidity and mortality. We should be sensitive to the youth dying around us. Some years ago, Chuck Colson was standing next to Prince Philip while at Buckingham Palace for the Templeton Prize ceremonies. They were surrounded by dignitaries. Mr. Colson, what can we do about crime here in England, Prince Philip asked. Colson told him, send more young British children to Sunday school. He smiled, thinking Colson was joking. Not at all, Colson added. Professor Christy Davis at the University of Reading conducted a study that showed when Sunday school attendance was highest in England, crime was lowest. Conversely, when Sunday school attendance declined, the crime rate increased. Send young boys to Sunday school, Colson concluded, so they can be taught the basics of Christian morality. Chuck Colson's solution to Prince Charles on how to decrease crime by sending children to Sunday school perhaps was true generations ago. However, it is not true for modern Sunday schools. Colson may have been well-meaning. He may have even thought he was witnessing, but Colson couldn't have been more wrong. He does not recognize that apostasy in the Christian world has resulted in a drought in the Christian world with a famine that's killing children. I want to share a sobering research finding by creationist Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis. A thousand young adults in their 20s were part of this survey. Let me quote Ken Ham. Two stunning and disconcerting results, and I'm quoting, came out of this survey. We discovered that we were losing our kids in church, in elementary school, middle school, and high school, not just in college, which is the conventional thinking. The large majority are already gone in their hearts and minds before college. Sunday school, he said, is one of the reasons why. Indeed, as our survey revealed, there is a Sunday school syndrome. Again, these are not my words. I am reading Ken Ham's words. There is a Sunday school syndrome contributing to the epidemic of young people leaving the church. Our survey numbers are statistically significant and are absolutely contrary to what we would have expected. This is a brutal wake-up call for the church showing that how our programs of Christian education are failing dismally. When compared to those who never went to Sunday school, more Sunday school attendees who no longer go to church believe the church is less relevant and more having become increasingly anti-church over the years, they're more inclined to accept 
abortion, gay marriage, and other unbiblical activities of our day. The startling conclusion is that, on the whole, the Sunday school programs of today, I'm still quoting, are statistical failures and are even detrimental. Out of the 1,000 interviews, 606 were former Sunday school students. The church failed these people miserably. As children and teenagers, these 606 were there almost every Sunday. They were present, they heard the lessons, and it had a nominal and even negative effect on their beliefs about Christianity. Is that childhood mortality? This drought in the world is severe. And like the droughts in Canaan, even impacts our own beloved Adventist church. You're probably aware that the average age of Seventh-day Adventist in North America is increasing. It has now reached 62 years of age according to the best statistics I was able to get, while the average of the U.S. population is just under 37 years. A generation of children have spiritually died and are no longer active in church. The statistics show a fall nationwide in interest and attention in Sabbath schools. At one time, Sabbath school attendance was higher than church attendance. Now it is lower than church attendance. I believe there are three take-home lessons important for health care providers. Number one, we should be alert to the signs of spiritual pediatric mortality. Number two, spiritual disorders are far more deadly than physical illness, and spiritual disease is far more difficult to treat. Notice Prophets and Kings, uh, as it continues, page 127, the apostasy of Israel was an evil more dreadful than all the multiplied horrors of famine. But there's a third point we should not miss. Physical drought, famine, and death, easy to recognize. But spiritual drought, famine, and death is easy to miss. Notice the uh, gleaner. Um, unless transformed in character, From grace to grace, there are many who will be unable to discern the needs of a dying world. May God help those who are now indifferent to be reconverted and to realize their responsibilities in these times of well-nigh universal apostasy when so many know not that the time of their visitation is near. Now, why is spiritual drought, famine, and death so easy to miss? In August of 1860, Robert O'Hare Burke led a famous expedition of men, including William John Wills as a surveyor out of Melbourne for the first official survey of Australia. They were hoping to find a, a good land route and an inland lake. Unfortunately, food was harder for them to obtain than they expected. And within three months, they began running out of food. Local aborigines introduced them to nardu, edible spores from a fern. Nardu tasted good, and it satisfied the explorer's appetite, and soon after they began to prepare it themselves by grinding it up and mixing it with water to make a thin paste. 
Since it was readily available, they began eating four to five pounds every single day. They thought they were now saved. But though they seemed to be eating sufficient food, they began to lose weight and strength. The nardu pleased the taste, it satisfied the appetite, but it didn't sustain their life. The nardu contains a great deal of thiaminase, which breaks down vitamin B1 and causes a B1 deficiency, and of course the ATP cycle is disrupted. As your body can't use the food you eat to provide energy to its cells, you starve to death even though you have sufficient calories. In fact, the more calories of nardu you eat, the worse it is. The aborigines cooked the nardu in a way that took out the thiaminase, but the explorers missed that detail. When they finally figured out that they were starving on night, nardu, it was too late for a rescue. Wills wrote four days before he died, starvation on nardu is by no means very unpleasant. But for the weakness one feels and the other inability to move oneself, for as far as the appetite is concerned, it gives me the greatest satisfaction. He loved what was killing him. Could we say that in the days of Elijah, Israel was eating and drinking spiritual nardu, and it could not sustain them? Though their stomachs were filled, their taste buds satisfied, they were starving. The prophet Isaiah asked, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Our society is now pagan with rapidly decreasing Christian influence. This is spiritual nardu. This spiritual nardu makes a starving individual temporarily feel fully satisfied. Our children can be starving without feeling hungry. Computers and internet provide every kind of distraction from Bible study and constant entertainment. There is an increasing realization of computer addiction. Virtually every young person today knows Facebook, but few know the book. Sin has never been so available and inviting. Internet qualities, accessibility, affordability, and apparent anonymity make it more difficult to resist the temptation of online sin. Make no mistake about it, pediatric mortality is the sensitive indicator of drought and famine. If there is a wholesale spiritual death of young people, there is drought and famine. Behold, the days come, Amos said, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. That time has come. Like the children of Israel, we are walking in the parched land of the wilderness. In the wilderness, the Israelites didn't have many gardens. In times of drought, we cannot depend on our efforts for our daily bread. In time of drought, the only way we can feed our families is to get our supplies daily from heaven. There is no drought or famine in heaven. Wherein there is nothing on earth to sustain us spiritually, we can look to heaven to supply our needs. Like Jacob, who sent to Egypt for help, we must send to heaven for supplies of grace. Evangelism 341. Through much prayer you must labor for souls, for this is the only method by which you can reach hearts. It is not your work, but the work of Christ who is by your side that impresses hearts. Like the widow of Zarephath, who was miraculously sustained in the time of famine, we must be miraculously sustained. 
Like the widow who welcomed Elijah into her home, we must welcome the prophet into our home by welcoming the writings of the prophet into our home. Then as we pray, we will be miraculously sustained as the widow was sustained. It is because of the famine in the land that Jesus told us to pray, give us today our daily bread. Like Israel in the wilderness, we must have daily manna or we and our families will starve. Like Israel in the wilderness, we cannot get water in the dry creek beds and cisterns of the world around us. We must be miraculously provided with water springing from the rock. Without God's daily sustenance, we cannot survive spiritually. That is why we daily cry to God before we eat and drink for the bread and water of life to feed ourselves, to feed our families, to feed our employees, to feed our patients, lest we die in a general famine. In this time of famine, are you getting the abundant supply of food and water you must have to survive? Do you have a rope that is long to reach the well that is deep and never grows dry? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. A time of drought is a time of unprecedented opportunities. Friends, we have a storehouse from which to draw and give to others. When no one has water or money to buy water, when no one has food or money to buy food, we can point them to a source of pure water and nutritious food. Joseph was a type of Christ. He built storehouses that were never used until a time of drought and famine. I love what Spurgeon said, and I'm quoting, Joseph had filled the storehouses on purpose to open them. He did not put a bushel of wheat in there for his own keeping and lock it up. What was the use of having it stale and musty for the mice and the rats? He put the wheat in, in, in purpose to, on purpose to take it out again. When the Lord Jesus gathered all the merit of his life and death together, he did not do it to keep it useless. He gathered it on purpose to save sinners with it, on purpose to give it away. Whenever you think of Jesus Christ, say, all this is meant for needy sinners. There is not anything in Christ for himself. It is all for you and for me and such as we are. If we are guilty, that fountain which he filled is to wash us. If we are naked, the robe of righteousness was meant to clothe us. I will put it very plainly, uh, Spurgeon says, there's not a bushel of wheat in Christ's granary, but what is meant for hungry souls to eat. You have but to come for it and take it, for he has put it there on purpose for such as us. While we may be thankful for heaven's storehouse, God has actually made us part of his storehouse. One of the most famous and highly regarded of the British officers, was an, who even has influence today in novels and play, plays, was General Charles Gordon. And he was a committed Christian. When the English government sought to reward him for his magnificent life of service, he declined all monies and titles. But he accepted a gold medal on, con, on condition 
uh, he, no, he, he, he did accept a gold medal, which they had put his name and a record of his 33 engagements in the war. After his death, they could not find that medal. Finally, it was learned that he had sent it to Manchester during a famine with a request that it be melted down and used to buy bread for the famishing poor. In his diary that day, he had written these words, the last and only thing that I had in this world that I valued, I have given over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Medical missionary, that journal, 1891, says, I call your attention to the sure results of heeding the Lord's admonition to care for the afflicted, and the Lord shall satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. The widow who gave her all away got more to give away. We are living in a time, Review and Herald, when a great work is to be done. There is a famine in the land for the pure gospel, and the bread of life is to be given to hungry souls. There is no better work than getting out our literature. Thousands of books containing the precious light of present truth should be placed in the homes of the people in our large cities. I'm reminded of one of my mentors, a hero of faith, that uh, I'm grateful was able to present at one of our conferences, um, although he died this year, Russell Youngberg. And getting literature out, patience with others. We can use our resources for the famine-starved multitudes. For he shall be, Jeremiah said, as a tree planted by the waters that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful. In the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. I was very convicted of my need to have more prayer. And I was convicted when I read in the, uh, I was listening to Leviticus, and it said that uh, when you came into the presence of the Lord, the, the priests were to have their hair combed. And then my wife told me that her grandfather, before he would pray, would comb his hair. Well, I thought that's very interesting, and the next morning, I haven't done it very often, but the next morning, my wife was still asleep, usually uh, around 5, maybe 4.30, sometimes at 4. Um, we, uh, we pray. And, uh, and uh, then study the Bible and just have our worship. But Sherry had gone to bed a little later, and she was clearly sound asleep, and I didn't want to wake her up. So I slipped out, and I have to tell you, before I knelt down to pray, I went into the bathroom and combed my hair. <laughs> and, um, and then I knelt down to pray. It was on a Monday morning. And I said, Lord, it's a time of drought. 
and and I don't know how to give the water of life to my patients. I just don't know what to do. And you're just going to have to help me. And I, I, I just prayed earnestly. And uh, one of the reasons I, I wanted to have uh, Heidinger talk before this talk was he had just gone through a very similar experience about the same time. And, and so, uh, so I prayed. Uh, for a time until, until I was satisfied that the Lord was going to answer this prayer. And then I was surprised when the very first patient that came into my office that day, because I had a, a busy schedule and there were three or four they had sort of packed in and, and uh, were actually already waiting, wanted to talk to me about spiritual things. And I realized I didn't have time, but I realized this was an opportunity maybe to invite uh, this person to our home, get better acquainted. Um, his wife uh, seemed like a, a very honest person, and, and uh, she was an oncologist there in uh, right next to my office. And so I said to, to this patient, I said, and this isn't a HIPAA violation because I do have permission to tell this story. Um, um, I said, why can't we, what about getting together um, and uh, I'd just like to get better acquainted with you. And Marco said, uh, well, why don't we do that on uh, Thursday night, and I'll just have my wife give you a call. We'll confirm it. Well, our schedules didn't quite match, but uh, I was able to call them on Thursday night and invite them to come with us for a hike on, on uh, Saturday afternoon. Since she's an oncologist, I told her that we'd have a good um, uh, cancer-preventing diet, and, uh, and they're elite athletes, and so uh, a uh, hard hike sounded uh, like it would be fun for us. We enjoyed that, hark, that hike and the fellowship. And that prayer brought my closest two friends in Blue Ridge. And they even joined us tonight, uh, Marco and uh, Jennifer. and. Um, uh, prayer enriches your life. We've just done everything together. We've, uh, uh, we're looking at uh, Gary Gibbs' uh, prophecy videos together. We're, uh, we've eaten together. We hike on Sabbath together. We go to annual um, conferences together. The Lord has so enriched my life. And I wonder what would have happened if I wouldn't have prayed. Then uh, Jennifer, the oncologist, told me that for three years, she had been praying for ways to know better how to outrage. And Marco had been praying for ways. Now the Lord has brought three praying people for a stronger outrage for our patients in, uh, in Blue Ridge. And uh, um, I've been just amazed. Let me just tell you two stories this week of of what's happening with prayer and, uh, and the, the patients. Most of the time we see patients and uh, 
and, and they would actually be offended if uh, we talked to them spiritually. But uh, two days ago, one of my patients came in and he has some, um, some skin problems because of his circulation. And he also, we had done surgery and he had difficulty healing down on his leg because of his smoking. And I talked to him about his smoking. He says, you know, Dr. Mills, I've, I have tried to stop smoking now. I've been trying to stop for years, Try, start, trying to stop. And so I, uh, I asked him if he was uh, a Christian, and he said he was. And I asked him if he would mind if I would pray with him in, uh, in the office over, over because he, he just so much needed to be free from that bondage. And uh, we prayed. I told him I'll be praying for him. I'm praying for him every day. My wife and I, uh, in, our, in our prayer time together, we're mentioning him. I, t I told him, I said, I don't have a lot of people on my list, but you are on my list of, uh, of prayer. I am so grateful that we can bring that dimension to help our patients, aren't you? Um, yesterday, I had the most, uh, the most amazing experience that I have ever had in, in, my, in my practice, I think. Um, two weeks ago, yesterday, I do surgeries on Wednesday, and so this patient came back because he needed to have his sutures out. It was two weeks suture removal. And so my nurse told me that the patient wanted to see me. And so I went into the uh, room, and I thought he probably wanted me to check the um, surgery site, and it was great. Healed well, and we always pray before we do the surgeries. And, and, um, um, but that wasn't why he wanted uh, to see me. He said, he said, Dr. Mills, he said, uh, what is the chapter in the Bible about prophecy? Now, I don't know what I said with him and, and the nurse. And I have no idea what our conversation was as we were doing the surgery. Uh, I, I can't tell you. Um, it probably was something that had to do with present events and some spiritual illustration or some prophetic uh, lesson that came out. And uh, so uh, um, he, said, he said, I'm not very religious. But he said, my wife is. And I went home to her and I asked her, what's the chapter in the Bible about prophecy? And she didn't know either. So can you tell me what that chapter is in the Bible that gives prophecy? Because I want to read it. Um, I have never in all my practice had a patient come into the office and ask, um, ask me to tell them about prophecy. And so we set up a time to study the prophecies together, he and his wife. And I'm just so grateful. You know, once again, the time of, um, of drought is a time of great opportunity. Prayer not only opens heaven's storehouse to us, it opens our storehouse to others. In this time of drought, prayer is not 
an optional privilege. It is a necessity. If we would keep from starvation in our families, our staff, and our patients, and our churches. I, uh, I just started a year and a half ago my second practice. I'm so grateful for Dr. Chung to make it possible for me to do dermatology. I love dermatology. And I determined this practice I was going to set up differently than my practice before. I am learning that all of us have, we are centers of influence. And who we, and how we pray determines whether we are a center of influence for God or a center of influence for Satan like Ahab was. I played, prayed that God would, brought, would bring me to the right place. And he clearly indicated Blue Ridge. And I determined I'm going to start our day off with worship in our practice. I've always had one that refused to come for whatever reason. Now, um, our worship is prayer. We pray, and maybe I'll say just a, a word or two, um, just the way it all worked out. But if we are going to have a center of influence, we must have a center of prayer. Review and Herald says, uh, important lessons are presented to us in the experience of Elijah. This is my close. When upon Mount Carmel he offered the prayer for rain, his faith was tested, but he persevered in making known his request unto God. Six times he prayed earnestly, and yet there was no sign that his petition was granted, but with strong faith he urged his plea to the throne of grace. Had he given up in discouragement at the sixth time, his prayer would not have been answered, but he persevered till the answer came. We have a God whose ear is not closed to our petitions, and if we prove his word, he will honor our faith. He wants us to have all our interest interwoven with his interest, and then he can safely bless us. For we shall not then take glory to self when the blessing is ours, but shall render all the praise to God. God does not always answer our prayers the first time we call upon him. For should he do this, we might take it for granted that we had a right to all the blessings and favors he bestowed upon us. Instead of searching our hearts to see if any evil was entertained by us, any sin indulged, we would become careless and fail to realize our dependence upon him and our need of his help. Dr. Luke tells of the disciples asking Christ, Lord, Teach us to pray. As we begin this conference on centers of influence, I want to join the disciples in asking Christ to teach me how to pray. Perhaps there are others who would like to join me in a renewed commitment to prayer. Prayer in private. Prayer in the family. Prayer with staff. And appropriately praying with patients when it's as I say, appropriate. If that is your desire, would you kneel with me and as we ask God to take charge of this conference, teach us how to pray so that we can be centers of influence.
Father in heaven, we don't know how to pray. We don't know how to labor for souls. And in, even if we did, it's a drought in this world, Lord. All of our labor won't produce one grain. You must send the rain. You must work with us. You must help us in our feeble and frequently erring ways of doing things. Lord, I pray that your spirit will come upon this conference, that it may be no ordinary conference, but that we we become livened and changed. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for your promises. And we now press your promises to the throne of grace. In Christ's name we pray, believing that you will give us. You will give us rain here. In Christ's name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.